0: In recent years, we've witnessed a remarkable transformation in the way we gather weather information and how it's presented to us. The first weather satellite was launched just over 60 years ago, and the National Weather Service started tracking storms on Doppler radar in the mid-1980s. So the emergence of artificial intelligence has also changed the face of meteorology, streamlining processes, enhancing communication, and bringing precision to forecasts that we've never seen before. I was curious is how meteorologists in the field are using AI. And I actually spoke to several that work with the National Weather Desk, one of those being meteorologist Chicago Windler from our station in Texas. She works in Austin and she uses AI regularly. As far as meteorology in the future, there are some machine learning things like the NATO cast, if you've seen that, where it's predicting where there might be a higher than normal percentage of tornadoes being in a certain area. I do look at that. I think it's kind of useful. But there's also concern about the dependence on AI for accurate information. Here's Andrew buck Michael. He's a meteorologist in Columbus, Ohio.
1: So I think that AI could be beneficial, but it it needs to be a resource and not something that is relied on uh, wholeheartedly. But I do think that it needs to be contained uh, going forward.
0: This week we're going off the radar and into the controversial world of artificial intelligence. We'll explore the ways AI is being used to advance weather forecasting and to save lives in the ocean. We're also gonna hear from our team of meteorologists from around the country on how they use the technology and their concerns for it. I'm meteorologist Emily Gracie, and you're listening to Off the Radar, a production of the National Weather Desk. On the show, we dig deep into topics about weather, climate, the ocean, space, and much more. Our goal is to help you better understand the weather and to love it as much as we do.
2: Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: Chances are if you're listening to this podcast, you have already used artificial intelligence at some point, probably even today. If you've unlocked your phone with facial recognition, you've used AI. If you typed out a text that was autocorrected, you have used AI. AI can suggest your next binge on Netflix. It can add captions to a TikTok. I'm using AI right now to enhance my voice on this very podcast, but can it give you an accurate forecast? Hey, ChatGPT, is it going to rain tomorrow?
2: I apologize, but as an AI language model, I don't have real-time data or the ability to browse the internet. Therefore, I don't have access to the latest weather information or forecasts. To find out if it's going to rain tomorrow, I recommend checking a reliable weather website or using a weather application on your smartphone or computer.
0: Today, I'm talking to professionals in the science world that are using AI to improve safety and save lives. First, I'm talking to Dr. Russ Schumacher from Colorado State University. Russ and his team have been using AI and machine learning to create more precise forecasts for heavy precipitation events. And then later, I'll talk to two scientists that are using AI to detect rip currents. So sit back and get ready to level up your knowledge with a deep dive into the world of artificial intelligence. I I think there's a lot of confusion about artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. and I've seen some fear among especially the weather community that all of us weather forecasters and meteorologists are going to be replaced by AI. But... There's a good chance we're already using this to our advantage, correct?
3: Yeah. And I think that's where that's really where the the best case is gonna be, right? Is where we develop these new tools and make the most use of them and kind of get, you know, the information out that we can get. But but to use that then to inform the experts who are much better at at communicating, at kind of synthesizing all the different sources of information. Um, so that, you know, this has been a long running question in meteorology, you know, since we've been talking about machine learning or AI is the, you know, the right mix between the humans and machines in, in weather forecasting. And so that, you know, that conversation goes back decades, but I think it is coming up even more now because we have these new tools that are evolving so quickly. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of things that expert forecasters are really good at that we're not, you know, anywhere close to, to matching with with these tools.
0: Can you tell me the difference between AI and machine learning? It's kind of a fuzzy line. I think uh, AI
3: is sort of a big, um, you know, if you think of a, a Venn diagram or whatever, AI is sort of this big circle that, and then machine learning is a subset of that um, that is focused on, um, right, on, you know, training computers to learn information you know, roughly in the same way that our brains do. I mean, we never can replicate that exactly, of course, but, but that's kind of the idea. So so machine learning is kind of a subset of that. But then, you know, now I think when people think about AI, they think of this this generative AI like, like ChatGPT and tools like that. And so that's a little different from at least how we're using it in the weather world right now, where it's, you know, those tools are sort of trying to anticipate what Kind of conversation you're going to have, or to answer a question that you might have. Whereas with the machine learning tools we're using in meteorology, similarly, we're asking them questions and trying to get answers from them. Uh, but it's a little more constrained to the to the meteorological data that that we're kind of used to, at least up to this point.
0: So, how does it differ from the use of computer models?
3: The traditional computer models, numerical weather prediction models, uh, that have been used in meteorology for a long time for the most part are now informing the machine learning models. And I think that's where the, the best bang for the buck is in, in this in that there are some things we know that the, the traditional NWP models don't do all that well, right? Like we can't explicitly predict where tornadoes are going to be because the, um you know, the resolution isn't good enough or, you know, we know they have biases in, in certain fields. So then if we can, take that information and then couple it with the machine learning, which also has its strengths and weaknesses. Like the machine learning doesn't really know the physics of the atmosphere. Uh, It's trying to kind of figure that out statistically, but it's not programmed with, you know, starting from F equals MA kind of uh, uh, first principles, but it's really good at figuring out the relationships between, you know, one variable and the next. And so the, Traditional forecast model may not be able to predict that there are going to be tornadoes explicitly, right? But then if we take that information with the historical connections of what kind of weather conditions lead to tornadoes and feed that into the machine learning and connect it with the the weather prediction model, now we have kind of a suite of tools that, that the forecasters can use. That get both those real those uh important statistical relationships, but also the, you know, physics of the atmosphere that we've studied for many decades.
0: Yeah, you talk about tornadoes. Um, I'm also curious about heavy rainfall, like very and I live in a city mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. even yesterday it was raining in my front yard and it was not raining in my backyard. Yep. <laughs> so, so I'm curious about what you've created and what its capabilities are. Yep.
3: And I think in some ways that that issue of heavy rain is is maybe the hardest one, even harder than some of the other uh, weather hazards that are out there. So yeah, this is how our work in in machine learning applications to meteorology started. Was this issue of heavy rain is really hard to forecast? Models aren't always great at forecasting it. There's also the issue of you know a certain amount of rain doesn't mean the same thing in you know depending on where you are, right? Like along the Gulf Coast in Florida an inch or two of rain is like an everyday sort of occurrence, but in parts of the West, like where I am, an inch or two of rain is a big deal. And, and so you want to account for that somehow in the forecast too. And so so what we developed was a tool that um, basically uses information about how rare a rain, rain event is for a given area. And then uh, a history of numerical weather prediction forecasts with their strengths and weaknesses and then those historical observations, and then feed all of that into the machine learning algorithm to try and develop a probability of excessive rainfall happening on a given day. And especially to inform the excessive rainfall outlook that the that NOAA's Weather Prediction Center issues daily, because they were in the same place. They didn't have a, a good tool that um, could kind of include all of this information at the same time, right? You have prediction of one inch of rain two inches of rain but not much information about like is that uh, meaningful is that extreme is it likely to cause a flood
0: interesting so how accurate is it it depends in one
3: sense we don't have anything else like it to sort of compare it to and so it's a big advance in that way in that it it, it you know is making predictions of of something that's of a lot of interest um, but was kind of hard to predict with you know other methods that had been done. Previously, uh, we certainly have some some uh, excellent success stories uh, where where the system was you know putting high probabilities multiple days in advance over the area where the heavy rain ended up occurring, but there's also a lot of days where it's not getting it right or or you know putting the highest probabilities in the wrong place, and so that's the kind of stuff we're still working on to to try and make better um, and some of that stems from the just fundamental challenge of predicting heavy rainfall but some of it also stems from this issue of not actually having a great definition of what heavy rainfall is because it it depends where you are it depends if you're in a city or a rural area right a downpour in a city can cause flooding very quickly whereas that may not happen in um, in areas that aren't paved over so we try to incorporate as much of that information as we can but it's it there's not sort of a single data set that that encompasses all of that so that's one of the challenges we have, but that's what we've been trying to push forward with this research.
0: So are you continuing to make that tool more accurate? And are you working on any other hazards? Yeah, right
3: now we've mostly focused on the heavy rainfall and then the the kind of U.S. defined severe weather hazards, tornadoes, wind, hail. Um And yeah, we're, you know, we're both working with those operational forecast centers to make the tools better so that the the forecasters can use them as part of their arsenal in making their forecasts but also you know trying to make improvements to to account for some of these data challenges we have right now those are the main things our group is working on um but i think the potential for this is is big in a lot of other areas you know any of these other hazards that are sort of hard for traditional forecast models to get right either because they're really small scale or they're hard to yeah hard to deal with in one way or another so you know, snowfall, fire weather, these kinds of things I think are are ripe for these kinds of advances going forward as well.
0: So then going back to, you know, meteorologists being replaced by AI, I just wanted to get a little feeling from you on the necessity of broadcast meteorologists still, even with all of the tools that we have.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the whole, you know, the whole weather enterprise is key to this and the people are key to it, right? So the hope is that, you know through this research and other research that other groups are doing is that you develop tools that make the the meteorologist's job the you know whether it's a broadcaster or weather service or private sector uh, to make their jobs easier right and then to to do the really critical thing which is get that information to people who need it to make decisions it's still a big challenge in in the best possible world i think that's where Things maybe get to is the point where you know maybe some of the quantitative stuff and and you know processing these huge data sets are done in an automated way, but then you still need people to interpret that to figure out what it means and then to, to communicate that to to decision makers to the public because I think we've all seen this in the last several years too, right? Just in the public, like people get their weather information from their phone apps and maybe 80, 90% of the time, that's totally fine. Like it's going to get the high temperature, right? Most of the time, but on the really big, uh, high impact weather days, that phone app is not doing all that well. And that's where you need the, the expertise of, of people to come in, um, and get that information across. And so I think it's similar with, with, you know, the, these AI and ML tools, uh, can hopefully inform that to make those numbers better, um, you know, and especially for the high impact cases. But we're certainly very far from the case where someone could take, you know, literally the output of, of our system or some of the other tools that people have developed and, and put that into action right away. It's instead a, a, another tool in the toolbox that the experts can use to get the, the real message across of what's going to happen.
0: Seems like if anything, it might even like create jobs for meteorologists because more people need to be working on these tools to, to ensure the accuracy. Yeah, there's that
3: aspect of it, of, um, you know, of designing them, of developing them, make them be- making them better, but also, right, the, the amount of data out there is just only going to keep growing uh, over time. Sure, like machine learning is really good at making sense of these big data sets. That's sort of what it's what its strength is. But you need someone there to to come back and and bring it back to the big picture and and what does this mean? Because it's not where computers are strong, that's what people are strong at is the what does it mean part, so what? Um, so if we can combine the the processing of these huge data sets with new methods and new um, you know sophisticated techniques and combine that with people who can provide the so what what does it mean for me then then hopefully we're all doing better as a field
0: i asked our meteorologists if they thought that ai might replace forecasters one day here's what andrew buck michael had to say
1: it's a good question. I think that as we go into the future, uh, meteorologists still will have a role. Uh, we're able to kind of in real time look at what the weather situation is, maybe radar imagery during severe weather events or tornado events that I don't know if AI will be able to pick up on those weird little nuances and some of the experience that real meteorologists will have
0: As folks are headed to the beach this summer, the danger of ocean fatalities is on the rise. In June alone, 23 people in Florida died as a result of rip currents. And even with increased awareness, people are still dying. Two researchers are working to change that with the use of artificial intelligence. Dr. Greg Dusick is an oceanographer with NOAA's National Ocean Service. And Dr. Alex Peng is a computer scientist from the University of California, Santa Cruz. I spoke to them about the new technology they're working on to spot rip currents with the use of webcams set up along the beaches. They also told me about some amazing goals for rip current apps in the future. Take a listen. I want to start, and maybe Greg, you're the better person to answer this a little background on rip currents, because I think there is some confusion in the general public. Some people call them. Um, Riptides, tides, uh, maybe don't quite know exactly what a rip current is, how it forms. Can you give us a little bit of background there?
2: Yeah. So so rip currents, well, first off, rip currents are the n- number one public safety risk at the beach. Uh, we estimate that there's about a hundred drownings per year in the U.S. caused by rip currents. Um, and so, so, they're, so they're a big deal. Um, and rip currents can occur anywhere you have breaking waves. Uh, so any, you know, really, any ocean coast around the u s. as well as the Great Lakes, and they occur due to ha- changes in how waves are breaking along shore. Um, and and that can happen for a few different reasons. But the most common is probably due to changes in the shape of the bottom. So you might have a sandbar. If you go to the beach, you kind of see sand building up near the shore. It's a little bit shallower in some places than others. That can lead to changes in how waves are breaking. Those changes in in breaking waves drive circulation. So, Changes in breaking waves change how water is coming close to shore builds up more when you have large waves less where you have small waves and you drive the circulation pattern, which forces a rip current and those rip currents can reach um, up to five miles per hour, uh, which I know sounds slow to a lot of people. But that's about the same speed as a top Olympic swimmer. uh, When Michael Phelps set his world record in the 100 meter butterfly, he averaged about five miles per hour. So. So even if you're a really good swimmer, they can they can cause a lot of problems.
0: And the National Weather Service puts out forecasts for rip currents, high risk, moderate risk rip currents. Are they basing that off of weather conditions? Because I'm guessing you can't really forecast what's going on underneath.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. So yeah, uh, NOAA issues rip current forecasts um, across the U.S. Those. Um, come from a rip curve forecast model that we developed uh, actually just a couple of years ago. Um, and that model predicts the likelihood of hazardous rip currents anywhere along the beach, about every mile or so along shore out to six days into the future. And it does that from computer models of waves and water levels. So, um, you know, th- those those computer models are able to predict pre- with pretty good accuracy what the waves are going to be like near shore and, you know, what the tide is, what the water levels are and those can. Add into this rip curve model and help us predict the likelihood. And of course, all of that, all the waves come from the atmos- you know, the atmosphere, the underlying um, winds, of, cur- of course. And so, so those are included in that that wave model. So it's a pretty complex system, uh, but but it, it ends up providing pretty good guidance to people.
0: All right. So now, tell me what you guys have been working on using artificial intelligence, which that term already scares people. I think but this is being used for a really good reason. Can you tell me how this works?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, well, the, one, of the, the, one of the reasons we wanted to understand you know, where rip currents are occurring is to be able to let people know when there's a potential risk, but then also to inform our models. So to be able to predict rip currents into the future, we need to know when they're happening in the past because we have to understand what conditions lead to those hazardous rips. And so um historically we've done that working with lifeguards and we still do that we work NOAA works closely with lifeguard uh, groups and, and and ocean safety groups across the US and they provide us visual observations of rip currents um but you know lifeguards have other things to do they're not just there to collect data for us and lifeguards aren't everywhere and so uh we wanted to come up with a new approach to be able to know when and where rip currents are occurring and that led us to using webcams and video, and applying AI to that video to detect them.
0: So, Alex, can you tell me how this works? How you can use AI in videos to detect rip current?
4: Sure. So, I think one of the interesting things is that, uh, as you mentioned in the beginning, uh, there's a little bit of confusion what rip currents are. Sometimes they even call them riptides. Uh, So we do have beaches, beach signs that alert people of rip currents when when, when there's high danger of rip currents occurring. Uh, The issue there is that some people may not bother reading the sign, but even for those who do, they don't really know how a rip current looks like or which part of the beach to go in and which part of the beach to avoid. So one of the things we're trying to do is help people Identify where the rips actually are. So they're not all along the beach, but they're probably on some parts of the beach. So that's where the AI comes in. Uh, we're trading, mo- we have actually two different methods of detecting rips. Uh, one of them is based on their appearance, so kind of how a rip looks like visually. Uh, sometimes um, the rips are not very strong, so the visual signature is not very prominent. Uh, there's another way to detect them that we're working on. And this one is more appropriate for the webcams that uh, Greg mentioned. Uh, This would then detect rips based on the behavior of how the water is moving. So we have two general approaches. One is based on how rip looks like, another one's based on how the water movement's behaving.
0: Is this more realistic and um, better in practical use to have multiple cameras than it is to have multiple lifeguards? Is it easier to, to do this than it would be to have lifeguards every so often Just put up a webcam? and... Yeah,
4: I think I, I think it's a question of resource. At this point, uh, it, it's still a research stage. Uh, we still need to validate how you know the accuracy of our models. So definitely, lifeguards with their years of experience help, and they can. Some lifeguards can even anticipate where the rip, the rip might show up even before they show up. With resources, I think uh, definitely having lifeguards around is very useful. There are some beaches without lifeguards, then some tools like the ones we're developing might be useful in place.
0: So how long have you been working on this and where are you in the process right now?
4: Uh, We've been looking at various approaches uh, for a few years now. I think we first started looking into this problem back 2016 or so.
0: So I I guess I don't fully understand AI. I mean, I, I understand the benefits and the drawbacks, but I don't fully understand how it works. I'm wondering if you can dumb it down for me a little bit.
4: (laughs) Okay, sure. Uh, So I could briefly describe the one that uses uh, appearance-based approach. There are different types of rip currents. One of the common types is uh, something called bathymetry controlled uh, rips. And the general appearance of that is you have breaking waves uh, that's coming towards the beach. And then there might be a gap in the breaking waves where there's a deeper channel and the waves don't break there. And that's usually a signature of that's where the rip is located. Usually what happens is when you look out from the beach, you'll see breaking waves on either side and no breaking waves it's in the middle. That's a good indicator that there's a rip present at that location. For an AI or more specifically machine learning model to learn or know about this visual signature... You need to collect a lot of training data that you then indicate and present to the model to say that hey, this one has a rip, it's located here, and in this other image, there's no rip present because you don't have that visual signature. So you train this model so that when you then point uh, your camera, let's say at the at the beach, it will then detect whether that visual signature is present or not.
0: Is this Information going into the forecasting models yet.
4: So the forecast model is a little bit different. I think Greg's model includes things like weather conditions, uh, tide levels, um, um, bathymetry information if those are present, and so on. We the model that I just described does not incorporate those information. It's purely based on visual signatures. But I think there's definitely collaboration available so that the observations that are being collected at the beaches could then be used to validate the model forecast that Greg produces.
0: So Greg, I'm curious because this is great if we can detect rip currents and, and spot them, but then there's also this communication aspect of getting people out of the water when they occur. So I'm curious if you can touch upon why people are still drowning in rip currents, even though the forecasting has gotten so much better.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, and and I think it really comes down to, you know, uh, people get in a situation even if they know what they're going to do. So I th- let me take a step back. I think one thing we've been very successful at at NOAA is communicating what to do if caught in a rip current, um, which is just to, to stay calm, to relax. You know, it's not going to pull you underwater. It's just going to pull you away from shore. And then we tell people swim along the beach, swim parallel to the beach until you're out of the rip current and then back to shore at an angle. And and a lot of people, we've done some social science research shows a lot of people know what to do, um, but knowing what to do and actually being able to do it uh, when you're in a life threatening situation are two different things. And so what we've heard from stories is that we hear people like, I, I know I was in a rip. I know I'm not supposed to swim against it, but I start panicking and then I can't, you know, can't do what I have to do to get back to shore potentially. And so what we've really tried to stress is is know before you go, you know, what you need to do before you get to the beach, when you get to the beach, and and before you hopefully, you know, hopefully you don't prevent yourself from getting into that kind of a situation altogether, which is which is really where the the forecast modeling can can help is getting people information before they go to the beach. But um that comes down to communication. It comes down to, you know, raising awareness. So people know where to find this information. And people know that, you know, even if you're a good swimmer, even if you, you know, are concerned with the conditions, it's still helpful to swim near a lifeguard. Um, you know, that's the best thing you can do to, to, to protect yourself. So so it's about communicating that kind of information out to the public. And we're still working on that. I think we've made progress, but but clearly it's still still ways to go.
0: I'm curious, who is drowning? Do you have any stats on who's drowning and, and ways to prevent that? Is it kids? Um, does education need to happen in schools? Is it adults? Is it surfers? I know I live in Charleston, South Carolina. And when there's a rip current risk, every surfer in town heads to the beach. So I'm curious who's actually at risk.
2: That's a great question. And actually surfers um, uh, like rip currents because they can use them to get out past the breakers. So like if you're a surfer, you're on a surfboard, you're floating, you're usually a good swimmer, not usually a big risk for them. Um, But what we see in terms of demographics, uh, males are much more likely than females to to drown. I think it's over 80% of all drownings are male. Um uh, uh and then to your question yes we see children uh are frequently drowning um and then also like middle-aged men um uh and and you know we can hypothesize as to the why but say you know on the children's side obviously tend to be weaker swimmers and and we've really tried to reach that audience with some of our messaging we've actually created a video uh on rip current safety an animated video dictate you know really tried to gear towards kids um, we've had our videos in the Smithsonian and some other museums as well. So we're trying to reach children with some of this and talked about doing stuff at schools and things like that. But I think the other thing we find even beyond the demographics is that it's often people that don't live at the beach, you know, it's the people who go less frequently, who aren't as familiar with conditions, who aren't as, uh, you know, used to swimming in the ocean because it's a lot different than a pool. And, and that's even harder because then you're talking about reaching people away from the coasts and and it's a lot harder to kind of, you know, make sure you're you're providing messaging inland as well as at the beach,
0: but this is tough, especially if you're talking about somebody who's not normally at risk. Okay. Well, really interesting um issues, and i'm I'm glad that Noah is working hard to to really find solutions. They're new new things you're working on right now with the the use of AI and anything that you're excited to be looking for in the future. I guess one thing I'll say is
2: with all of this work with cameras and AI, we have this new Web camera network called Webcoos, um, which is funded by NOAA. Um, it started in the southeast, and that's and that's where Alex and I have done a lot of our work thus far. But we're working towards making this a national network. So we would like to have a national webcam network where we uh, work with partners, communities. If they have locations where there's a lot of rip currents, where they have a lot of drownings, we can work with them to get a camera up, get it installed. Um, and then collect the data and, and hopefully be able to provide warnings to people in real time at those locations, you know, if they have to be worried about a hazard. So so this idea, this data collection is something we really want to spin up and try to to have a, a larger impact um, than where we're started right now, which has been very much, you know, uh, it's been the initial stages, It's very much research and development. But we're starting to get to this uh, hopefully national product um, and, and can get information to people who need it.
0: Alex, anything you want to add?
2: No, I just want to echo what what Greg
4: says uh, so fluently. Um, yeah, I'm kind of really looking forward to uh, expanding the regional work that we've been doing to a more uh, national scale. I guess the other thing I'm not sure if it's too early to mention. Should I mention the Refinder project,
2: Greg? You can if you'd like. Sure, you should. <laughs> Why don't you just pitch it, Alex? Just give us a just give us an introduction to what you're going to be working on. So
4: I guess one of the things that kind of really got me into this project to begin with was basically beach safety and and friends pointing out to me, hey, look at that rip, how strong it is. And I'd be looking out at where they're pointing out, and I'd say, well, where where is it? I can see it. So uh, I think one of the ultimate goals that I have is to uh, be able to have a uh, basically a phone app that you could just point at the ocean and you could see where the rip is. Uh, so that's kind of our, our ultimate goal. We're not quite there yet, but uh, we're hoping to get to that point at someday in the future.
0: That'd be amazing. That's a and I, I'm guessing that would use AI technology as well.
4: Uh, yeah, R- right now it's the AI technology. It's it's most likely going to be on the appearance based. Uh, so it's going to be has to have the strong sig- signature to be able to detect.
0: After today, I think it's clear that AI has a place in the world of weather, and it's not going anywhere. Listen to what meteorologist James Spann from our Birmingham station has to say about it.
1: To do this right these days, to be a television meteorologist in a local market, you you don't sleep. Uh, Most people get weather from their phones, and phones never turn off. And to push products and services out across social, digital, traditional radio, television, speaking in schools, doing weather programs, I often don't have time to do analytical thinking. And, And that's dangerous in this business because that's what we're here to do. And so I I think AI will be very helpful in that regard. I don't think it'll take away jobs. It might take a few, I guess, but uh, there's always going to be that need for the human touch when it comes to uh, weather. You, You can't forecast the weather correctly unless you really understand the people, the culture, the geography, and the microclimates of the area that you serve. And I'm not so sure AI will be that good at that, but we'll find out.
0: Off the Radar is a production of the National Weather Desk. Make sure you're following the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes publish every Tuesday. If you know someone that's interested in learning more about AI, please share this episode with them. We'd also love you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Let us know what you think of the show. Give me some ideas for future episodes. This podcast is produced, hosted, and edited by me. Special thanks to James Spann, Chicago Windler, Andrew Buck-Michael, and Ryan Berlin for their contributions. Odd meteorologist Emily Gracie. Make it a great day.